All right, well, good morning again. This is fun. It's a big day for us as a church. Um, Every year in the fall, I I like to start with a sermon series called Where We're Going. Just kind of laying out at the beginning of this season what we're about, our vision as a church. And I often feel like that's an important thing to do at the beginning, uh, you know, when we're just kind of getting back into the routine of the year. But I feel like it's even more important this year uh, because there is not very much of a sense, I think, in our world about where we are going, right? Doesn't it feel like for the last year and a half we have been enduring an earthquake that doesn't seem to actually let up? That the ground underneath us is constantly shifting and moving? Have you found yourself asking, where is this all going? When does this end? You know, where is this world headed? See, this is one of the things that actually should mark out Christians, followers of Jesus, as different in the world. Because no matter what the circumstances are in the world, we actually do believe we know where we are going. We, we believe this in a big picture, eternal sense, that God is on the throne of the universe, that he's sovereign over history, and that we know that in the end he's going to make all things new, and he's going to make all things right. But it's also true in a temporal, right now kind of sense, too, that that God has given the church a direction. He has given the church a mission. And it's not dependent on what's happening in the world. It is the same thing through the years. I can tell you where we're going as a church because we've been going in the same direction for 2,000 years. You think about it like this. Imagine that there is a, a stony path that cuts through the heart of a, of a stormy sea. This is this, clo- this picture that you're going to see is as close to the image as I could get, but it's not quite a stormy sea. But you get the picture, swirling, raging currents on both sides, wind howling, trying to knock you off into the waters. See, this has always been a temptation for the church to get sucked into the shifting and changing kind of currents of our world, to live by the agenda of the world instead of by God's agenda. And when the church has given into that pressure and has succumbed to that and got it sucked off the path, it has inevitably been destroyed. It's lost its way. But when the church has been faithful to Christ, it's, it's, like, a, it's like a traveler forging ahead steadfastly on this path regardless of what's going on around It's not that you're ignorant of what's happening around. It's just you have to be aware so you avoid the temptations so that you can stay on the path. Now, about a year ago, I initiated a conversation with our our board and our elders to try to restate our our vision statement, to give a fresh expression to it. And we invited uh, Kevin Schuler, who you saw before on, on the video, to kind of help us with that. Like I said, Kevin wasn't able to be here uh, for the service. He had urgent business to attend to, but he's coming for lunch, which is quite the thing to do, isn't it? To just miss the service and just come for the lunch. And some of you, by the end of this, are going to be wishing you had made the same decision. But in any case, he walked us through this. It It was awesome. It was so good. But what we came to in the end as a vision statement was nothing groundbreaking. It wasn't anything novel. It was just one more statement of what has always been true of the church. This is our statement, that we as a church live to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. 
And so here's what I want to do this week and next week, just at the beginning of this, of this season, is I want to go through our vision statement in two parts. And, and I think this is, this is so important because, again, of all the change in our world, because of the change in our church, a new building, a new kind of relationship with our community around us. We've been here for a while, but this is like being rooted here as a new kind of stage in our relationship. New people, so many of you who are new to us at the bridge, even in the last couple of months who have started to call the bridge your home, a new season of of ministry represented by this grand opening in the midst of all of that newness and change. I want to say Here's what we're about as a church, and it's the same as it always has been, that we would know Jesus. That's what we're going to talk about today. That's our stony path through the stormy waters. So let's pray, and then we're going to dig into it. Holy Spirit, I want to invite you into this place today. And I want to invite you to work in our hearts and work in our church Lord, I I pray that wherever there are uh, barriers, wherever there is a a hardness of heart, wherever there is a a kind of resistance, Lord, to what you would have to say to us, I pray that you just break through that by by your Holy Spirit, your your way of of kind of probing through the the hardness of the heart and, and bringing us life, Lord. We ask for that today. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the witness of the Apostle Paul, as we'll, we'll read more about. And we pray, Lord, that we would be shaped and formed in the same way that he was, as a church and as individuals. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so the text I want to bring us into this morning is from Philippians 3. But I, I need to give you a little bit of context before we get there. So one of the, um, well, first I should say, as, as a lot of you will know, Jesus was a Jew. All his disciples were Jewish, and the good news about Jesus was, was originally understood as primarily Jewish good news. One of the most surprising things that happened in the early church was that as the good news of Jesus spread, that it was Gentiles as well who heard and believed and received it as good news for them as well. And what was even more surprising than that was that when the Gentiles believed that God poured out his Holy Spirit on them just like he did with the believing Jews. And he didn't require the Gentiles, apparently, to become Jewish. Didn't require the the males to get circumcised. Didn't require them to start eating kosher. It was like, believe in Jesus and boom, you're in. You're good. And for some people... Like the Apostle Paul, the early church planter and missionary and author of half the books in our New Testament, that was really great. He liked that. Other people weren't so sure. And so everywhere Paul went, he came up against this, this opposition from people who said, no, 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 it's not enough to believe in Jesus. You also need to adopt all these Jewish identity markers. So that was kind of the battleground that Paul alludes to in Philippians 3. He says these other teachers, his opposition, they put their confidence in the flesh, which means maybe what has happened to their flesh as in circumcision, but also they're putting their confidence in human standards instead of God's standards. So with all of that in mind, as a background, here's Philippians 3, verses 4 to 6. If you've got your Bibles, open them up there. Philippians 3, verses 4 to 6. Paul says, If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, 
In regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So again, Paul talks about the confidence in the flesh, and he says, whatever confidence these other people have, I've got more of it. You went to UBC, I went to Harvard. You were the captain of your hockey team, I went to the Olympics. You volunteered in a community organization, I started a nonprofit. Whatever they've got going, you know what, I think it was a Nike commercial, right? Whatever you can do, I can do better. That's what Paul is saying here. And the, the particular realm he talks about is Jewish identity and practice. The first four things he talks about are all things that he didn't choose. He was born into it. It's his legacy. It's his heritage. And I can kind of resonate with him here a little bit. I, um, I was born and raised in the Mennonite church. I'm now a black sheep because I, you know, I'm Baptist church here and stuff. Just no, no more family gatherings for me. So anyways, I grew up in the Mennonite church. And... Um, if you don't know, Mennonites, they're an interesting group of people because it's both an ethnic group as well as a church denomination. And sometimes the lines get blurred and a non-ethnic Mennonite might never feel quite at home in a Mennonite church. But that wasn't a problem for me because I was born into this, you know? I did, my, I did my family tree for a school assignment stretching back 400 years. I think there were two ancestors who married people with non-Mennonite last names. Like, I am a menno of menos. I, I was eating raw kuchen by the eighth day of my life. My first, low, my first words were low German phrases like, Obayo, which like three of you understood. But my mom will get it and she'll laugh. So that's all that matters. The point is, I was born into this. So I, I get that. Paul is saying, I, I didn't come into it later. I'm not mixed up about where I came from. This is me from the womb. And then he says, not only is it true of my identity, but I lived it out. Like fully, no compromise. He says that he was a Pharisee. Now in first century Judaism, the big issue was the occupation of the promised land by the Romans. This was the issue that everybody was wrestling with. And the Pharisees were a group of people who said the solution to this is that we need to adhere rigorously to the law of Moses. And if we do that, then God will be pleased and he will kick the Romans out for us. So the Pharisees were the most devout, strict, studious, seriously religious of all the groups of first century Judaism. That was Paul. And Paul says he was so zealous about the law that he even persecuted the church. These followers of Jesus who he believed were blaspheming God by worshiping a man. Paul says, I was, I was persecuting the church. Say what you want about that, but somebody who's half-hearted doesn't do that. He was all in. And he says, according to righteousness by the law, he was faultless. We're going to spend some time with that word righteousness later on, but... Uh, for now, let's just say Paul's not claiming sinlessness or perfection. He's just saying he lived his life by the law. And that whatever provisions the law made for forgiveness of sins, Paul followed that through. You know, he lived his life by the law. Just in every way, Paul is saying these teachers think that you need to add on these things. Let me tell you, I had it all in spades. Now think about our world today. What are the things in our world that people put their confidence in, that people believe will earn them salvation in some sense? It's kind of cliche, but a lot of people, for a lot of people, it's, it's money, 
and it's the kind of job you have. You know, it's having the kind of job that when somebody asks you, what do you do, and you say it, they go, whoa, you know? It's, it's driving a certain kind of car. It's having a certain body and fitness level. Here in North Van, it's not enough to do the grouse grind. You should really be doing bicep curls as you run up the mountain. It's, it's about having a, a certain kind of attractiveness or having an attractive spouse, having, you know, kids. Like, that's the good life, right? So, so if that's kind of, if that's what people put their confidence in, it's like Paul here is saying, look, I was the, I was the jacked up guy with a, a driving a Porsche with a supermodel wife and Ivy League kids, you know, like I had that. Maybe in, in, a, in an emerging generation, it's more so the basis for confidence and salvation comes from aligning yourself with the right social justice causes, always being on the, on the side of the oppressed. There's a... Um, I don't know if you've heard about this. There's a reality show on CBS that's like it pits social activists against each other to see who can like advance their cause the most and raise the most money. Apparently it's awful. But Paul would be like the champion of that, right? Like if, if that was the basis of confidence, Paul's saying like, I want the reality show, man. Like that's how, that's how committed I was to this. Whatever you put confidence in, I had more. That's the setup. Then here comes the turn. Verses seven to nine. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. First thing to take note of here is how Paul makes this dramatic, startling statement that everything that he once valued so highly, that he put so much stock into, he now sees it as useless, as worthless. It's not even that they're not assets, it's that they're liabilities even. He goes even further than that. He says that it's garbage, which is actually a really polite translation because the Greek word that's used here is about as close as you will get in the Bible to a profanity. The Greek words, I'm going to teach you a Greek swear word, skubalon, it's in the Bible, uh, Scubalon is a word that could refer to human excrement. And New Testament scholars agree that certain four-letter English words would be a more accurate translation. So here's the thing. I'm a pastor, and I'm up here, so I probably shouldn't say those words. But you're out there, so I think it's okay if you do. So on the count of three, I just want everybody to, to yell out the word that you're thinking, okay? So one, two, I'm just, guys, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. Guys, come on. Come on, guys. We're not, that's not, we're not going to spoil opening day with that. No, no. Some of you are like getting your cell phones out. I got to record this moment. They're going to delete it off of YouTube. Uh, no, the point is, <laughs> Paul felt really, really strongly about this. Like, all that stuff that I cared about, that I lived for, I now consider garbage. It's trash. I got no use for it. Now, Why? What happened to Paul that he had such a dramatic reversal of what he valued? See, I think usually when this kind of thing happens, when there are values get like, turned upside down, it's for one of two reasons. One reason is that something really traumatic 
has taken place that just causes you to reevaluate what your life is about. I heard, I, I heard a story, I don't know if this, you get these sermon illustrations on the internet, and it's like some pastor 40 years ago made this up, and you're like, I don't know if it's true at all. But anyways, here it is. There's a woman who was on the Titanic, when the Titanic struck the iceberg, and uh, she, was, she was getting onto a lifeboat and then re- realized she had like one, one moment to quickly grab something from her room. So she goes in and she sees on her cabin dresser two things. One is her jewelry and the other was a bowl of oranges. Now all her life, the jewelry had been more valuable, right? That's what she had lived for. All the circumstances of her life had taught her that was what was valuable. But in that moment, she realized with her life on the line with death, facing her, that the oranges were going to do a lot more for her, for for what lay ahead. Do you know what I mean? She realized oranges in this moment, in these circumstances, were far more valuable to her than diamonds. And so she chose the oranges. Now, the other thing that can happen to reverse our values is that we come across something that is just simply orders of magnitude better than what we had before. So it's not so much that you're getting scared out of valuing the things you used to, but that those things just dull in comparison to what you now meet up with. So as a really superficial example, I first moved to BC about 14 years ago. I was, uh, I was a bachelor. I was making a, I was making a salary uh, for the first time as a youth pastor. Big time bucks. Woo! And uh, I... Right, Nate? Uh, I decided to, spl- decided to splurge. Don't answer that question. Uh, decided to splurge, and so I bought a new set of golf clubs, and I bought a new TV. I spent $1,000 on a 32-inch flat-screen TV, which 14 years ago would have been about like that, that wide, that thick. And uh, I was so pumped about this. I was like, this is the greatest thing ever. I invited friends over to watch my 32-inch screen, low-definition TV. Uh, we had that TV for about 10 years, and then a few years ago, uh, somebody, somebody here actually, gave us uh, a, a new 52-inch HD TV. And we set this thing up in our living room. And it was like, what? <laughs> what were we doing all of these years? You know, like I couldn't imagine watching anything on that old TV because we had found something orders of magnitude better. Now that's a really trite and superficial example of what happened to Paul. For Paul, I mean, it was, it was quite an experience that, that led him to this. Uh, this reversal of values. In some ways, his life probably flashed before his eyes. But even more so, I think it was this. I think he met someone who was just far better than all that he had known before. He says, he he talks about righteousness. And this is where I want to talk about this word, righteousness. And we're going to get into some theology right now. And uh, I'm, I'm going to try to keep it understandable and relatable. But here we go. Now, righteous, it's a very churchy word, right? You don't hear it very often in our world today. I think, was it, was it a thing that hippies used to say? Like, that's totally righteous, bro. I feel like that might have been a thing. I don't know. But, but righteous is a, is a pretty churchy word. Probably a lot of people aren't sure what it means. And theologians even debate about what it means. But uh, the way the Greeks originally used it seemed to have the, the basic meaning of meeting up to a, a standard. Like there's, there's an expectation, there's a norm, and you are, you are fulfilling that. So for example, an expectation in family relationships might be that a father, if his son passes away, will take care of his, his daughter-in-law. And if he does that, then he's being righteous because he's fulfilling the expectation of this relationship. 
which gets to how the word is used in the New Testament, that it is not so much just purely about ethical behavior, it is about fulfilling the the standards and expectations inherent to a relationship. It's being in right standing with somebody. And we all know what that's like. We, we know what it's like to not be in right standing with someone. A relationship is broken because you did something or they did something. And, and now, like, someone hasn't been righteous, and so the relationship is, is broken. That, that can be true of our relationships with others. It can also be true in our relationship with God. But in both cases, it's this it, righteousness is uh, meeting up to a standard inherent to a relationship. Got that? We good? So Paul talks about how he had a righteousness of his own that came from the law. What he means is that he was striving to live by the law of Moses and that by doing so, his community saw him as righteous. He was in right relationship because of that and he hoped that because he adhered to the law that he would be in right standing with God. That, that he would have accomplished that. So that was the mark of righteousness that he believed would keep him in good standing. Now here's another question. What are the marks of righteousness in our world today? What are, what are the things that you need to do to remain in good standing in society? To use just the most controversial possible example, uh, right off the bat, I, th- I think vaccination has very much become this standard of righteousness where our our media and our politicians will tell you if you fail to do that then you are unrighteous you know that you are you are not fulfilling your end of the deal and then of course there are some communities of people where being vaccinated is 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 failing to meet the standards of this community you know that you are letting people down but in either case, it's what you do or you don't do that, that makes you righteous in the eyes of others. For Paul, that was the law. Now, here's the problem with a righteousness of your own. There's an inherent fragility and insecurity to it because you never know if you've done enough. You never know if, if you've all of a sudden triggered a, a tripwire that will get you canceled. Yeah, and, and the other thing is that if, if you're striving after righteousness before others, that you'll never please everybody. So you might be righteous in these people's eyes, but not in these people's eyes. And so it's, it's tyrannical almost. It's, it's oppressive. It's miserable to try to achieve a righteousness of your own because you're never going to make it. I re- I'm reading a book right now that talks about this kind of thing happening on university campuses over the last decade or so. How you've got these, these so I, I mean, these are, these are examples from the liberal world because that's really kind of where our, our media and our, our academia is. So, so that's where the examples come from, but it can happen bo- on both sides. Um, but professors who have been politically liberal all their lives, but they... They critique woke culture at one spot, and all of a sudden they're, they're being barricaded in their office. There are calls to have them fired, you know, and, and so there's this pressure. Or, or journalists who, again, are very much left-leaning, but they report unfavorably on leftist politics one time, and suddenly there's calls for their resignation. They're being deplatformed. Again, you could see this on both sides of the spectrum, but either way, you're, you're walking on eggshells because, because you never know if you've done enough. And, and it's the same thing with righteousness before God. 
Because if it's, if it's based on what you have done, you never know if you're on the right side of the ledger or if you have ticked God off so much that he's just done with you. Paul said that that's what he used to live for, but he had found something so much better. He says that he had discovered a righteousness, not of his own, but that was from God on the basis of faith. He said that he had gained Christ and been found in Christ. You see that the shift in language where Paul is no longer the subject. He's no longer the point. Jesus is. He has been found in Christ. See, Jesus was the one man to actually live up fully to God's standards. If anyone could be righteous because they had actually fulfilled the expectations God had given humanity, it was Jesus. So not only was he righteous, but Paul understood that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he had made it possible for all to have their sins forgiven and to be restored to God, to be made in right relationship with God. See, so far Paul has done nothing, right? This has all been a work of God through Jesus. The only thing Paul is to do is to trust in Jesus, to be attached to Jesus by faith and to simply receive the righteousness that Jesus had already won for him. So it wasn't an insecure righteousness anymore because it wasn't based on what he did. It wasn't based on him maybe ticking God off. It was based on what Jesus had done, a righteousness based on faith in Christ by grace. Do you see how this would have been orders of magnitude better than what Paul knew before? If you even start to glimpse this, it's the most freeing thing in the world. Because you're no longer living for the, the approval of, a, of a, a shifting and fickle world. You are living for the righteousness of God alone. And you're no longer anxious about, about gaining God's approval because you know you already are approved through Christ Jesus. And your good works are no longer a tireless effort to try to win God's salvation. Instead, they are an expression of love because of the love of God in Christ for you. I'm confident if Paul was alive today, he would say all of those bases, ba- all the basis of confidence, all of those, all of those uh, bases for righteousness, whether it be money or social activism or vaccination status, are worthless, useless, garbage compared, compared to knowing Jesus Christ. Now, we don't sing very many hymns here at the bridge. I'm not, hey, Brent, do you want to spontaneously sing a hymn? No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to ask you to do that. Uh, but I do want to tell you about a hymn. Were you getting anxious right now? No, I was ready to go. You were ready to, were you? Really? Do you know And Can It Be by John and Charles Wesley? Uh, it's not on my heart. Okay, well, that's a problem. So I'm going to tell you about this. <laughs> John and Charles Wesley, uh, they, they really were after a righteousness of their own. In university, they had, they had started a holiness club which is, is they were trying to be as holy as they possibly could. They would be like your, your frat boys. They were the really fun guys to hang out with on campus. And uh, so they, they started this thing. They were, they were all about this. And, and it was miserable, and it was enslaving, and it was a tyranny because they, they just could never get there. And then John Wesley had an experience. Both of them eventually had an experience 
where he discovered uh, salvation by grace, that he was loved by God, uh, and that God had done everything necessary for him. And it, it just changed his, changed his life and really changed the course of Western Christianity. This was in the 18th century. Uh, and they, they wrote a whole lot of hymns, these two brothers. And one of them is the hymn that Brent refused to play this morning. <laughs> from, and can it be? And these, these are the words, and I want, I want to read them to you. And, and, and just tell me that these are not the greatest, this is not the greatest news ever. They said, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine, alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Paul could have written those words. He essentially did. And and that realization for Paul led to a whole new orientation in his life. Here it is, verses 10 to 11. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Given what Paul has experienced in this righteousness from God, this is what Paul says he's all about. He just wants to know Jesus. And I've always been astounded by what Paul says here. Like, I get that you would want to know the power of his resurrection, right? Like, to, to see the, the, the lame walking and the, the sick healed and the dead raised. I mean, the victory and triumph, even a building like this. And this morning, it feels like, yeah, like this is like a vibrant church is being birthed here in this place. This is like, this is the power of Christ's resurrection. Sign me up. But Paul says, I also want to know the participation in Christ's sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And you go, come on, Paul. No. But see, this is where Paul gives the game away. Because he's not after a head knowledge of Jesus, where you just accumulate facts about him. If you think that the point of this morning is that you need to go read up on Jesus' Wikipedia page, you missed the point. It's not a head knowledge. And it's also not a, like an instrumental knowledge that just helps you get to something you really want more. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't be talking about the suffering, right? It's a relational knowledge that's driven by love for Jesus. And so that's why for Paul, even suffering can become a contribution to this whole life orientation around knowing Jesus. The betrayal of a friend, that stings, But when you're in Christ, it becomes an opportunity to know a little bit of of the heart of Jesus who experiences unfaithfulness from people, losing a loved one in death. Man, that is one of the hardest experiences in this world. And yet in Christ, it also becomes an opportunity to rest in the hope that we have through him and through his resurrection, to know him in that sense. Being being persecuted, being opposed, being mistreated because of your faith. That's brutal. But for Paul, he would have said this is an opportunity to know more of the experience of Jesus who knew a thing or two about this. This is why the early uh, disciples would rejoice when they were persecuted because they were getting to participate in Christ. 
facing wave after wave of temptation to do something you shouldn't is really hard, but it becomes a chance to depend on the power of Christ who resisted temptation to the end. Suffering happens to everyone. You don't get to go through life without bruises, without knocks, some more than others, but everybody suffers. The difference is that in Christ, suffering can be redemptive because it becomes part of this whole life orientation to knowing Jesus. This is what Paul was all about, and he was all about it as well because he knew that the rest of his life through eternity would be about this too. He says, I want to know the resurrection. Uh, I, or I want, so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead, Paul knew that if he knew Christ now, he would know him for eternity and that this relationship that God had begun would only grow and be strengthened and become even more real. I'm going to end a little bit differently today. Um, I'm going to tell you one more story, one more illustration. Then we're going to sing a song kind of responding to all of this. And then... Uh, I'm going to ask you to stick around for a video. Uh, it's only an hour and a half long. It's, it's not too bad. Uh, no, it's about five minutes. But that's going to give you kind of the next steps. Here, here's, here's a way to respond to this. So story, song, uh, video, don't run. And then, and then food afterwards. So um, in the 2004 Olympics, there was, uh, there was an athlete named Matt Emmons. He was in the rifle event, which I think is such a weird Olympic event. You know, like just shooting a gun. But the tug of war was an Olympic event once too. So, so he's in this event. He's in first place, and it comes to the final, the final shot. Uh, he he's way way in front. All he needs to do is hit the target. That's it. He doesn't need a bullseye. Just hit the target, which is not a hard thing for a world class rifleman to do. So he gets up there, and with all of this pressure, upwards of I'd say 10 to 15 people globally watching this event, he takes aim at the target in lane two, and takes aim at the target and fires a perfect shot. He's standing in lane two, fires a perfect shot at the target in lane three. The same shot at the target in lane two would have won him the gold medal. Instead, he got a zero, fell to eighth place, and it goes down in the annals of rifle shooting, if there is such a thing, as a catastrophic collapse. Here's the point. It doesn't matter how accurate you are if you're aiming at the wrong target. It doesn't matter how much of something you have if that something is worthless. You have to aim at the right target. And so many people in our world, in our city, and even some of us are aiming at the wrong targets. And it's a temptation for us as a church as well. We've got this incredible new building that's such a gift and so many people who have have played such a big part of it are here today and we've got all this technology and we've got so many good things going on like this is an exciting place to be you know like I, I love what's happening at the bridge but if all of this is what we're aiming for if it's if it's if it's our target if, if that's what we're living for then we're done for we're way
in the background, I just want to invite you to take a few moments to reflect on what you have heard and maybe take this moment uh, to say to God, I, I've been aiming at the wrong target and, and I want to live for you. I want to live to know Jesus. And so just take a few moments uh, to reflect and then I'll pray and then, and then we'll sing a song in response. Let's pray. Maybe you'd pray with me these words. But now I see, Jesus, that you are better than all that I have been living for. And so I receive your righteousness. I receive your gift of grace. Your gift of freedom from a righteousness of my own that could never, never be attained. I receive your freedom and your salvation. Jesus, we want to know you. We want to live for you. Lord, there is none like you. We love you. And so, Lord, as as a church now, we pray that you would be our vision, our goal, our target, that you would protect us, Lord, from the temptation of, of living for for the approval of others, of the world, that you'd protect us from the temptation of relying on our strength, on our, on our building, on our technology or whatever. Jesus, that we would just be so fully reliant on you and that our heart's desire as a church would be to know you. We ask this in your name. Amen.